Hey friends, it's Corey Andrew Powell here, letting you know it's time to treat yourself with an exclusive Motivational Mondays deal at the NSLS shop. Listeners get 20% off shop-wide with the code MONDAYS. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Need a new coffee tumbler? Or perhaps you want to keep it classy with a new hardcover notebook? Well, get them on sale. Listen, with this deal, I'm tempted to trade in my bow tie collection for one of those cute NSLS hoodies. And don't forget, use code MONDAYS at checkout. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Enjoy that 20% off at shop.nsls.org. And stay motivated, leaders. Stay motivated. Hello, everyone. I am Corey Andrew Powell, and I am joined today by confidence and compassion expert Magalie Renee. Now, Magalie is an executive coach and CEO of Workplace Catalyst and the host of the C Word miniseries for workers at the forefront of compassionate leadership development and emotional intelligence skills. Magalie, welcome to Motivational Mondays. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, thank you. No, we were happy to have you here too. As I was mentioning to you off camera, um, there's so many things that you do that are that are aligned with the NSLS. We're like, yes, we had to have her on and have a conversation. Now, you have been featured like everywhere. Good Morning America, uh, CBS News, Forbes, Cosmopolitan Magazine, like you're all over the place because apparently this is a message that is sought after that you are sharing with the world. But I want to begin with the basics for our audience. What is emotional intelligence and what role does it play or should it play? In our society? Oh, that's a juicy question. So I see emotional intelligence as the ability to be present to feelings, for lack of a better term, right? Uh, And that doesn't mean you need to be an emotional person. It just means you need to be present to what's going on inside of you and then also be able to be aware, right? That the other word for presence is awareness. Be aware of what's going on inside of you and then be aware of how other people are either receiving you or maybe what they're experiencing. Not on a deep, it doesn't need to be on a deep, deep psychological level. It's just being able to tell if someone is maybe feeling stressed out or feeling excited, right? It's We're talking... To me, the bare minimum, right? Being mm-hmm. able to be present with someone else and aware of what their emotional state is, but more, more powerfully, being able to understand the correlation between how you behave and engage and how that's going to affect other people. Yeah. Yeah. So much of that is aligned with when we always hear, or, or sometimes we hear people say, like, you can't control what other people do in situations, but what you can control is how you interact or how you respond to things. That is the part that we can control. And so I think, you know, when I hear you mention how you explain emotional intelligence, that's what comes to mind, right? Like the accountability of our own actions. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I like the way you put that, you know, being able to control. So it's your ability to respond, right? Your, your responsibility, Yes. Ability to respond. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things for me, as I've gotten older, I've I've chilled out from getting angry at people for one simple thing. And I learned this, which is also tied to this. I stopped getting upset with people based on them responding differently than I would have, for example. Right. (laughs) It's almost like, you know what? I can't be mad at someone because they did the opposite of what I would have done. But what I can do is maybe try to have that conversation with them and explain to them maybe how I 
think they should have done things better, which I think also is a conscious effort to not jump on people, but to help them have a conversation and help each other be better as well. Yeah, I think so. I mean, do I have permission to challenge you a little in this conversation? <laughs> yes, please. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, no softballs here, please. <laughs> okay. Let me have well, it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I think I think you're on the right track for sure, but but we can't, you know, I always say don't should on yourself, right? Like it's it's a funny little thing. Don't should on yourself because <laughs> is right? What if there was no right and wrong? I know I'm about to blow everybody's mind right now. But in mm. terms of in the context, we're not talking about violence. We're not talking about real deal intentional harm. We're talking about in the context of emotional intelligence, in the context of working with other people, communicating with other people. What if there's we are we're less about right and wrong and what you should have done and more about what's effective and ineffective. Right. This was my intention and this is what I want to see and my request of you is, right? Or are you open to? Because at the end of the day, somebody might not be aligned. They might be like, well, yeah, I shouldn't have, I should have done what I did. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, true, true. I said what I said. Exactly. Exactly. I said what I said. So I, I try and come from a place of more ex- expressing myself and where I was coming from mm-hmm. and giving that person an opportunity to meet me there or not. Yeah. And yeah. releasing that attachment to what they choose to do at the end of the day. Yeah, that is true because I mean, we're not responsible for other people. So that's very true. But I think when it comes to what you do with businesses, it's also very on par with how we can govern ourselves individually, which I think is really fascinating about your work because you, you help companies develop more compassionate leadership uh, constructs in their environment. I'm curious to know what are some of those things you do? Like, how do you advise companies to foster a more compassionate workplace environment? I mean, oh, that's such a, that's a, that's a big question. I want to answer it in a short winded way. I want to be <laughs> concise, but I don't know if I can be, but I'd say we do this. So I'll just go big picture, right? My, our tagline is the future of work is compassionate. And we really believe that we're in a new day and age. We know what we're all dealing with. And we're all dealing with different things, but we're also dealing collectively with so many major upheavals in our Mm. lives. And and somehow it feels much more poignant right now. The pressures that the the collective, the human human race is experiencing at this point. Mm -hmm. And so I think it requires a different level of leadership. And so what has worked in the past, again, moving away from right and wrong and getting into effective and ineffective I don't think we can be effective at this point if we don't choose compassion because people aren't having it on all the spectrums, right? Wherever they are politically, like Mm -hmm. everyone is so charged. So we teach at all levels or we facilitate more than teach, right? Because it's a journey. It's less like us talking down at people and teaching them the right and wrong way and more a conversation to bring people along at their own pace, wherever they might be. And we do that through trainings, through workshops, through programs. We've done that at the executive level for the full cohort, CEO included. We've done that at the managerial level. And we've done that with independent independent contributors, like the, the company as a whole. And that's how we do it. We do it through conversation is what it mm-hmm. comes down to. Yeah. And the conscious effort to make sure the CEOs are involved, that's really smart because very often in leadership, obviously, 
it comes from the top. And so if you don't have like the top of the food chain there, so to speak, aligned with those values, and it's not it's not going to be effectively implemented to mid-management or to the the workers beneath mid-management or not beneath, but who report to mid-management, uh, it won't be effective. So I think that willingness of the CEOs, of course, to go there is important because I know often they don't know what to, they say. They claim they don't know really how to do it. That I see, well, how do we begin with more diversity and inclusion? We don't know where to begin. And how do you respond to those sorts of requests? You know, I think people oftentimes, there's so much, you just said such a, you just said a bunch of powerful things. Um, I want to start with the first thing you said, which was it needs to start at the top. I believe that a hundred percent because, you know, I have, we have this conversation as coaches about source. I'm the source of what I bring into the room. I am the owner of my business. I'm the CEO of my company. Nobody's coming anywhere, going along anywhere, going to meet me anywhere. If I'm not already walking in that, I can't expect mm. that it's going to be ca- like other people are going to carry what I'm unwilling to carry, right? What I'm unwilling to face. So that I just wanted to highlight that point because that was a very good point. And then, you know, I think you move from top to, to you do top down, bottom up because everyone mm. needs to meet in the middle. Right. But yeah, it definitely starts with with the leaders at a company. And in terms of diversity and equity, inclusion and belonging, I think too often what's not working is I see that I see that many people, even those doing the work, right, doing the work of diversity, equity and inclusion and belonging. I really feel it feels so separate. It feels so separate from leadership. Like it's Mm. its own thing. And of course, in terms of the processes and systems and how we're going to execute, sure, it gets to be its own division department, have its own executive head, all that. But it isn't separate to the conversation around compassionate leadership. If you're a compassionate leader, it goes without saying you should give a crap about those things. (laughs) It goes without saying, right? So I think sometimes people look at it as this extra this additional thing where it's actually fundamental to the kind of world that most people want to live in. Most mm-hmm. people want to raise their kids in a world where they feel safe, where they feel like they belong, where they feel a sense of self-worth, where they go to work and they are able to be themselves. That doesn't mean, right. you know, you're going ham at work, but <laughs> kind of yourself. Exactly. But you know, you've, you're able to feel like you can be yourself. Everybody wants that kind of world. Somehow we've separated diversity, equity, and inclusion and belong. We've made it its own thing where really it's, it's a part of the whole. So Mm. that's usually my response to that. Well, it's, that part too reminds me so much of conversations I've had with a few past guests. One that comes to mind, I had on recently Daniela Pierre Bravo, who's over at uh, Morning Joe, and she has a book called The Other, uh, How to Claim Your Power as a Woman of Color in the Workplace. Yep. And then I had recently uh, the book by Mitzi Short, and her book was also um, with she and other female uh, women CEOs over the years and executives got together and they just sort of talked about all the different misogyny and sexism they experienced and all these different things. But when it comes to being a person of color, a woman of color in your case, I think there is something that that correlates to you mentioned showing up as who you are to be successful and i think when you're othered 
we have a whole other dynamic to sort of contend with, right? With the whole, I, I, the, uh, the inequity and racism can, uh, I guess, component to try to exist in the world. So that is an issue I think is really difficult sometimes for people of color to move beyond because they are automatically sort of othered in the workplace and not given those opportunities. I mean, do you find that that's something that is um, challenging for corporations to try to combat? Uh, I think it's something that they should be looking at because it is real. Our experiences are real as people of color in the workplace. I mean, I can give you story after story of my personal experience with that mm-hmm. and being in corporate and what I experienced and why I'm no longer I'm corporate adjacent. It's <laughs> right. I'm yeah. corporate adjacent. Doing my own thing. Yeah. yeah, but you know, and I, I definitely work with like um alongside corporate corporate America, but I'm not in that paradigm. Uh so I think I have a special purview because I've been inside corporate and experienced a lot of those things you're talking about, and I've been on the outside of it or alongside it. What I would say is So our company, Workplace Catalyst, we actually teach, well, not teach, but we facilitate on imposter syndrome. So that's one of, I mean, people get triggered by that term, but it's one of those terms I identify with because I experienced that for so many years, especially when I was working in corporate America, just feeling like I wasn't seen as a woman. I already was discriminated against or just not respected as much. And then on as a Mm -hmm. black woman, it's like, you know, intersectional, another level of like people, my feeling like I needed to prove myself and then not seeing people like me in these positions Mm -hmm. and these higher positions and feeling like I'm never going to get there and I must be a fraud. I'm the only one, like all these things. But this is the thing. Everyone experiences imposter syndrome. This is, this is the thing we all get to remember. Everyone experiences it even cisgender white men, they have the same Mm. feelings. I coach them. I know this to be fact. It just is for different reasons. So what I think is really effective is for us to be having that larger conversation within that larger conversation for us to be able to own and identify. And when I say us, I mean the collective, everyone gets to own and identify that different people experience these feelings for different reasons. And it shows up differently for people of color. It shows up differently for a cisgender white male. That doesn't mean he's not experiencing that, Mm. right? It shows up differently for another, I mean, I'm just giving you two identities. There are many, we understand that, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to single out. I just want to give you an example. And so I think it's really important that if the intention is to make sure that we are addressing diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And we are trying to increase the numbers of marginalized groups within organizations. And our goal and intention is to grow those people and train them up so that they're getting the same level of opportunity and also are prepared for the opportunity. Cause you know, let's not talk about the glass, the glass cliff, right? We're you're bringing people up and you're just basically throwing them off the cliff. Right, right. right. And then they also get, then of course, when they fail or when they don't produce, then, you know, they're scrutinized for that when they really weren't Correct. forward. Yeah, yeah. When absolutely. they weren't set up to win. So if your intention is to set people up to win, then be committed to that and identify the ways in which they're not set up to win. Identify the ways in which they they get to have talent 
you get to grow your talent. And there are some organizations, some that I won't name because we've been told not to name them, but some major <laughs> global inst- like companies that have conglomerates we're talking about who are actually doing the effective work. They have these uh, programs that are specifically tailored to black and brown talent. And they are specifically talking about how does imposter syndrome affect you? How does being the only affect you? How do we debunk that? How do we make it so that we're building also like I'm doing that work. We're delivering that work. And it's, it's very powerful. You have people realize what I didn't realize when I was in corporate in that I'm responsible for how I walk into a room, no matter who's in that room. And like, what does it take for me to build my self-esteem up, to build my confidence up, to stop self-doubting, stop second-guessing myself and speak up? And that is a skill and it is a tool. So I think that that's important to be addressing. If people are really committed to growing their talent and, and moving their talent up those ladders and having them succeed at these high levels, it's 100% important to be addressing those things. Well, see, that's why I think it's important, the representation part at the executive level, because when you have aspiring young people who are of marginalized groups wanting to get involved in businesses and organizations, if they get into that executive room for a meeting and like none of the executives look like them, immediately they don't, they don't see it because they don't, it's not there. So they don't really associate themselves as being able to be that thing. And right. It's so funny. I just this morning saw a, um, a viral video of uh, Viola Davis who, you know, she's just amazing. And, um, but she was on the view and she was asked why is representation so important and very simple response. She says, you know, when I was a little girl, like I loved a lot of actors and stuff. We all grew up, but when I see one that looks like me, I believe that I can do it. And clearly that's a formula that works, right? I mean, she's a living a testament to that. And so many of us are, even what you and I do in media, like, you know, I watched all your videos and your clips and, and I'm like, and I was thinking like when I was a kid, like it was far and in between to see strong, powerful black women speaking with authority about corporate positioning. And it just wasn't, it wasn't a thing, you know, and more and more we got those opportunities. And then of course, now little girls will see you little boys too, and say, I can do that. So it's a cycle that we have to keep feeding into as well. I think to help society become more representative of everyone. So we have a responsibility. That's my soapbox moment. I'll just, I love it. I've been on a soapbox the entire time. I'm like, good God, I'm still talking y'all. Let's see. So we're good. There's room. It's a big soapbox. We'll we'll stand side by side. There's room for you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So I do want to also talk about the other thing though, that you, that you, uh, that's a big part of your platform, which is the confidence building component. And you know, you, you help people and corporations sort of get beyond obstacles that are probably hindering their ability to be confident. But when it comes to individuals more, not corporations, because that could be a whole other area, but with people, what are some of the obstacles that you are finding that are prohibiting them from being confident that you have to help them work through? Uh, I mean, there are so many at the end of the day though, this is kind of a deep answer. I'm going to be really honest. What, what comes up for people, it always ties back to something they experienced when they were in their formative years, mm. uh, something they were told. I'll give you two examples. When it comes to confidence and 
our deeper woundings and how they show up. So they'll show up in our current lives, but it always tracks back to something. And everyone, that's the through line. Confidence is the through line. Confidence or lack thereof is a through line, I think, that connects us all when we're moving forward in our lives and our, especially in our career, the lack of confidence or the fear or the self-doubt that comes up. But two examples I'll give you, you know, I'm a first generation American. So my parents are from Haiti and my conversation when it comes to confidence has always been, you got to be the very best, like the very best. And you've got to be a doctor, a lawyer, If you're like a a low achiever, then maybe you're a nurse or a teacher. Those were the, that's the expectation. That's the level. We're talking like you're coming home with A's or A pluses. If I came home with a B, it was, why did you get a B? Like it was, so we're talking. So for me, on the one hand, you might think that that's great. And it is in a way, because it makes you a high achiever. At the same time, it's never good enough. It's never good enough. And there's that perfectionism. So now carry that through, through my career and into corporate and into like, then you just start adding things and then you feel like, well, I don't look like anyone here. I already experienced people doubting me. So now I'm doubting myself even more. And I'm holding on to all those things that told me I need to be the best. And so layers on layers there, right? Another example, uh, I have a friend who was a varsity, what do you even call it? Athlete. <laughs> and you tell I'm not an athlete. Anyways, but like a varsity, I'm like, what's that word again? An athlete. Anyway, so he's a, he was a varsity athlete all his life since he was tiny. Baseball, football, uh, basketball, we're talking the highest level. Always his brother was an athlete and his brother was older. So this guy was always had to be the best and he was the best. He was on all these winning teams. Now you get to a place you're, he's, he wants to run his own business, own his own business. What do you think shows up for him? What shows up is how can I be the best? I have to be the best. So it's even scarier for him. And that confidence is like, I've never lost before. And failing all of a sudden means I'm a loser, right? So I'm just giving you two experiences of how these things show up. Could be anything for anyone listening. It could be, you know, I'm not as good as my sibling or I always had to do this to show up a certain way. So I think that's what shows up. And one of the things that we do differently is that we do get to the heart of the matter. We do it in a very fun, experiential way in terms of the way that we deliver our work. It's not just teaching. It's it's not you learn this information and you go and no, it's like you're going to experience it in the programming, in the workshops, and that's going to get you to dig deeper and to sometimes connect the dots. You know, we have a lot of you with you prompts, which is like, we're not sharing that with anyone. You're doing like these writing prompts and, you know, should you choose, you can share. But a lot of times people will come to me later and be like, I never connected the dots between how this is showing up in my workplace, in my career, in my role, in my position, and what I said yes to, what I said no to, how I was engaging Mm. with other people. And it had something to do with this one thing that happened when I was 15, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, No, you have said a mouthful with that because one reoccurring conversation that that comes up in this podcast when I interview, and I mean guests going back from like, from if I interviewed Stedman Graham to 
Olympic diver Greg Luganis to maybe some, you know, someone who's not very well known who just did something extraordinary. So we interviewed them. In many cases, there is a history of an unresolved trauma. Always. That has, yes, that has dictated a lot of how they got through life until they recognized it and worked on. It. And I am one of those people. I mean, I went to therapy uh, in my late twenties and it saved my life. I was in New York, you know, New York, you're from Brooklyn girl. You know, that's a tough, oh, I, know. I know. Is it, is it, it's a New tough York, town. Anywhere. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, and I was living in Brooklyn at the time. And I was like, and I was just, uh, you know, in my, my late twenties in New York city trying to break into media, but being pretty destructive and, you know, distracted from my, my path and my, my vision. And I knew that I was kind of needing to get therapy. There was something bothering me. And when I put, when I did that work and connected those dots, it was the most empowering thing that I have ever experienced. And so much of that trauma being resolved allowed me to move forward. And so I can see what you're saying where it could be something small or something larger in my case and, and many other cases. But until you understand that that's what, that's maybe what's holding you back, I don't think you're, you can get past it. So, uh, dealing with unresolved trauma is huge, I think. 100%. Yeah. I think it's really, really important. So let me ask you about this other idea. I guess you talk about making impact in the world positively as part of your work as well, that through the acts of compassion, we can impact the world. But I was wondering, wondering about this notion, what you think about this. When I read that at first, I thought, well, I mean, not everyone's cut out to make these big, grandiose impacts on the world. You know, maybe they're not that person. But what do you think about the notion of, but if we work on individual, just small acts of compassion, that it can collectively be the big impact, right? I mean, does that sound a little bit too hokey? I don't want to get to Oprah. But I mean, what is it? What do you think? I think it's true. I think you're... You hit the nail on the head. I think impact, you know, we talk about impact as if it is a grandiose, huge, significant thing. And it can be, but sometimes it's the smallest act that creates it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, my mother always says, you know, do kindness for people and just put that into the world and don't have any expectation as to what's going to be created from it or what you're going to get back. You never know, though. I mean, how many stories have we read that someone was on a bench somewhere and somebody smiled at them and they said, you know, I was headed to kill myself that day. Oh, absolutely. You know, so it's not hokey. These are, these are real stories. The way you engage in the world and how you show up can be all the difference. It can make, mm. it can make the hugest impact. It can impact somebody life or death. You don't know. And so that's why. It's a choice. We have a choice of whether we choose to walk in compassion and and show up compassionately and smile in a day. I always say that uh, everyone is a leader. You know, I deal with executive leaders. Certainly, I deal with a lot of business owners, a lot of entrepreneurs, people doing these quote unquote grandiose, more grandiose things. But everybody that I coach is a leader. Everyone that I speak to and everyone that I engage with, like whoever's listening right now. You are a leader because you're the leader of your life, right? And so if you're the leader of your life, then show up to your life as a compassionate leader. What might that look like? How would you be with the person you meet to the people that you meet today? How might you be with your children? How might you be with your significant other if you're the leader of your life? 
poignant words of wisdom, I will say, from Magali Renee, confidence and compassion expert. And we are so happy you joined us today on Motivational Mondays. We really appreciate it. Thanks for being here. Oh, it was so great. It was great to be here. It was wonderful to have this conversation with you and use all of the tools for good, not for evil, (laughs) (laughs) y'all. Will do, I promise. Okay. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Motivational Mondays presented by the National Society of Leadership and Success and available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, and I'll see you again here next week.